Let me ask you to turn your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can read along in your own Bibles. You could also follow along in the bulletin. And if you're able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Would you please be seated and join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look together at your word, that you would guide us through this passage, that your Spirit would enlighten our minds, open the eyes of our heart, and cause us to see more of you and see more of our need for you. Would you challenge our preconceived notions? Would you deprive us of our idols? And would you, Lord, in all of this, would you cause us to worship you as your Word has its work in our heart? For your glory... And for our good, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you've been here the last few weeks, you realize that this is our third week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has been a book with a hypothesis. Don't worry about this right now. Talk about it in a second, okay? It's been a book with a hypothesis, okay? The hypothesis is very simple. We've spoken about it a few times already. The hypothesis is this. Is there anything in all of creation with which man may be satisfied or content that he may find his purpose and meaning? And as you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, I think there's a helpful picture that will help you to understand exactly what's happening in this book, okay? Week in and week out, through every chapter that we read, Solomon is conducting experiments. 
He's conducting experiments, trying to prove the hypothesis. Is there anything in the world through which man can be satisfied, find meaning or purpose? And if you want a helpful picture to really envision what's happening in this book, I like to envision Solomon wearing his scientific white science coat, okay? I don't even know what they're called. You know that coat that scientists wear. And I envision Solomon week in and week out taking the elements of life and mixing them together in his beaker, burning it on the Bunsen burner, and seeing if the experiment will prove the hypothesis, okay? And week in and week out, you can envision Solomon frustrated with the fact that this experiment hasn't worked, the elements boiling over, taking everything on the table, pushing it off the side, and then beginning the experiment again, okay? That's what's happening every week we read the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, King Solomon proposes a new solution. He comes up with the idea that maybe, just maybe, pleasure in this world will satisfy the hearts of men and women. And because he's the king over Israel, the experiment this morning is one of unfettered, unhindered, all that you can get, all that you could imagine, with no end in sight, pleasure in this world. So the question is, will pleasure satisfy the soul? Now, listen, this morning as we look at the passage, we all know the answer. The answer is no, okay? Every week we go through this experiment, the answer is no, it won't. But one of the things that will come out of this passage is that it gives us the opportunity to assess our hearts according to the pleasures of the world, okay? What is the relationship in our hearts to all that is pleasing in this world? How have we handled it? How have we idolized it? And what is the exact relationship? Three questions I want to ask about the passage this morning that will guide us through that discussion. The questions are on the insert in the bulletin. They're also written on the whiteboard up here. What is pleasure? What things are pleasurable? And then what is the problem with pleasure? Okay? So we'll begin with what is pleasure? If you read the first verse of the passage this morning, in your Bibles it reads something like this. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Now this verse is the springboard into the rest of the passage. Okay? This is the, the point from which Solomon propels us into a discussion about pleasure and about its ability to please or to satisfy the soul. I've written the verse up here this morning because when you read it in the English, there's, there's one word pleasure in that verse, okay? But it actually appears twice in the first verse, and there are two different words for pleasure that are used in the first verse. They are combined in the English, but they mean two separate, very important things. So I think they're worth talking about. The verse reads like this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with, the Hebrew word is simka, okay? Simka. Therefore enjoy, but surely tobe was also vanity. Two different words for pleasure. Here's what they, they mean. First of all, the first Hebrew word, simka, okay? Simka. It is the Hebrew word that means joy, happiness, or if you really want to be literal, it means everything that makes the heart smile. Isn't that cute? Everything that makes the heart smile. In the Hebrew Old Testament, this word occurs over and over and over again. And in 99.9% of the occurrences, it's a very positive word. 
give you a few examples. Ezra and Nehemiah, both of them are there when the wall is being built around Jerusalem. And both of them, upon seeing the wall and rejoicing in what the Lord has done, it says that they had simcha in their hearts. They had joy. They had happiness. Their hearts were smiling. Okay? Uh, other places where this word occurs, Isaiah the prophet, he says that in the future when the Lord comes that the joy of the Lord would be my salvation. That is the word, simcha. The joy of the Lord will be my salvation. Okay? Again, this word is used over and over to describe joy, happiness, the things that make the heart smile. I think there's a little side note to be mentioned here, maybe a small warning. In modern Christianity, we tend to differentiate between happiness in the world and happiness in God, and we use two different words. We say, well, that's happiness. We don't pursue happiness. We pursue joy. Okay? And yeah, there's a little bit of a biblical distinction there, but let me just give you a word of warning. They're the same Hebrew word. They actually are technically the same Greek word. And if we're not careful, we tend to justify our decisions by what we determine to be joy in our hearts, right? We can use this to, to live in unrighteousness, or we can use this to justify maybe a sense of guilt which we ought not to have. And I'll give you an example. I've encountered many people who have said to me, I'm making this decision, and it's an obvious unrighteous decision. I'm making this decision because I have the joy of the Lord in my heart, okay? I have peace with this. That must be good, right? I've encountered others who would say, as they live a righteous life, they would say, I, I don't have the joy of the Lord. I must be living in sin, okay? Here's, here's the warning. It's very simple. The human heart is deceitful above all else, right? Amen. I heard an amen. I love that. Deceitful above all else, okay? The heart sees what it wants. Whether it be good or bad, whether it be righteous or sinful, the heart sees what it wants, and what does it do? It convinces the mind very quickly. There's happiness in that. The mind interprets happiness as joy, okay? Be careful of justifying actions based upon a joy that you perceive to be the joy of the Lord, okay? The Lord God leads us through His Word by His Spirit. If it contradicts his word, I can guarantee you there's no joy of the Lord in that. Okay? It's not good for us. This is what the word means, simcha. It means joy, happiness, that which makes the heart smile. That's what Solomon says he pursues, beginning in verse 1. Then he says, but surely, tob was also vanity. Also a word for pleasure, but it literally means that which is pleasing to the senses. Okay? That which is pleasing to the senses. This word also is almost always used in a very positive way. Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam and Eve, everything in the garden is for you. It is good. That's the word tob. It means pleasing to the senses. God says it's good. It will taste good. It will be good. All right? Uh, Samuel, when he meets the young David, and he says, well, David will be the king. Okay? He says of David, the English says that you are a handsome man. Okay? It's the Hebrew word tob, meaning pleasing to the senses. Also a good word. Solomon this morning says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with happiness in your heart, the thing that makes you smile, therefore enjoy it. But surely that which was pleasing to the senses was also vanity. Now let me tell you, you combine these two words, you get the English word pleasure, but you get a concept of what Solomon is proposing to us this morning. It is this pursuit of anything in all of the world 
that would bring just a little bit of happiness to the heart. Whatever he could get his hands on, whatever he could fathom or imagine, whatever was pleasing to the senses, brought a little bit of happiness to the heart. That was the thing that he was going to pursue at all costs. It's the experiment that he's going to conduct this morning. These two words combined to form one Greek word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word hedone, which you might know it is the root word for hedonism. Okay, we've heard of hedonism. Listen to the definition of this word. It encapsulates beautifully what Solomon's describing in verse 1. Hedone is a strong negative connotation referring to pleasure that has made an end in itself. That is, the satiation of bodily desires at the expense of all other things. Did you hear that? The satiation, the satisfaction of bodily desires at the expense of all other things. That's what Solomon's describing this morning. That's what he said, okay, here's experiment 2.0. Okay, we tried out wisdom, it didn't work. Let's go to the next thing. It's pleasure. This is what we're going to try. Uh, satisfaction of the body at the expense of all else. And man, is he going to try it out. Okay? That's what is pleasure. That's what's being entertained here this morning. The second question to answer about this passage is, then what things are pleasurable? What things are pleasurable? This is great because we could have read the passage, and had we not had a description here, we could have sat here and postulated together, I wonder what Solomon was trying out, okay? What were the cool things that he was experimenting with? What were the things he thought would satisfy him through the pleasures of the world? But we don't have to imagine because he describes them here for us in this passage. So let me summarize a few of these. Let me give categories to these. I think with categories, we can see the crossover in our own lives. So first of all, he begins with bodily pleasure, doesn't he? The very first reference here is to wine, okay? That is the alcohol, and we could lump together with that maybe food, and the things that we immediately put into our bodies that almost instantaneously gratify the flesh, okay? Bodily pleasures. Alcohol, food, the things that we immediately go to, and they give us quick and easy satisfaction, okay? Then he talks about craftsmanship or the work of his hands. Did you pick that up? He says in verse 3 and 4, he talks about the palaces that he has built with his hands, the magnificent works, and there is pleasure in that, the, the use of your hands to build things. Then he talks about what I would describe as household magnificence. Household magnificence. That's not the palace he built, but it's the things he's filling his house with. Did you see that? There are servants and there are singers and there are gardens and there's waters and pools. It's amazing, okay? Household magnificence. He talks about treasures of beauty and of art and of nature. Whether we think of the the gardens and the pools or the singers and the magnificent things that are before his eyes, those are the parts of consuming of pleasurable things. He talks about riches, doesn't he? He says, silver and gold, satisfied with riches. He talks about there at the end what we might call sensuality, licentiousness. He refers to the concubines that he had. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 4 and you read about Solomon, there he's described as having 700 wives and 300 concubines, okay? Uh, king over Israel in the most prosperous time in the history of Israel, and he has as many women as he could imagine there with him, okay? 
This is how Solomon describes the pursuit of pleasure in his life. When I read that, I get the picture that's very consonant with the description in 1 Kings of a man who had anything that he wanted whenever he wanted it. Over and over again, as much as he wanted it, right? It reminds me of, I, I don't know why I, th- I often think of this, but I, I've told my kids before, this seems kind of silly, but when I was a child, I would, one of the cartoons I would watch was uh, Scrooge McDuck. Have you ever seen Scrooge McDuck? Okay. I forget what the actual cartoon was called, but Scrooge McDuck had a room. What, what, DuckTales? Is that what it's called? DuckTales. Thank you, man. Scrooge McDuck had a room that was filled with money that he would swim in. Do you remember that? Okay. I've always wanted, wanted a room that I could swim in the money. I think that not even because of the money, just because it looked fun to swim in the money, all right? That's, that is the description of Solomon here, okay? Yeah, he, he didn't have a room that he swam in the money with, but for all intents and purposes, he had everything. Wealthiest man in all the earth, okay? Anything he could ever imagine, he had it. And he is going to test out pleasure. So I want to ask you a question about this pleasure, and I, and I do believe this is probably the most important question for the morning, okay? So I want to stop here, slow down, and ask you this question. I really want you to think about it, okay? Who is more in danger of being consumed with pleasure? Solomon or the modern American church? Just stop and think for a second. Who is more in danger of being consumed with, of being tempted by, of being lured with pleasure, Solomon or the modern American church? You and I. Think about it. You, you go through the categories that Solomon describes here. You compare your life to his. You're going to have a question for yourself pretty quickly, right? Bodily pleasure. Solomon says, I had wine. I can guarantee you for all the wine that Solomon have, we have access to infinitely more alcohol and food. Everything we could imagine from any part of the, of the world, any way we want it, we can have it, can't we? More bodily pleasure than we can imagine. And we've got medicine and we've got drugs and we can alleviate pain and we can remedy all kinds of illnesses, okay? We have pleasure at our fingertips like Solomon never imagined. Think about the craftsmanship of his palace, how magnificent it was. And I know right off the bat, none of us has a home as large or as magnificent as Solomon did. And if you do, and I'm not aware of it, I want to tell you about our capital campaign after the service, okay? (laughs) No, I know, I'm kidding. None of us does. I know for a fact, none of us has a home like Solomon's palace, okay? But you know what Solomon didn't have? Electricity, running water, televisions, washing machines, air conditioning, heat, refrigerators, phones that he can click the button and turn the lights on, the lights off, and the garage doors closed. Solomon had none of that in his home, okay? He would look at the way we live, and he would say, how luxurious. This is pleasure. Everything else he describes here, you think of it, everything else we either can see on our televisions, right, He talks about the beauty of the gardens. I can see gardens any day I want. Any day I want. I can see a a musical on Broadway. I can see a comedy flick. I can see see an action-packed thriller. I can do it anytime I want. I click the button, okay? I could hear the greatest singers in the world singing. Solomon's singers had nothing on these singers. Or we could buy it at Walmart, can't we? 
He talks about the herds and the flocks. He thought it was magnificent to have all these sheep. I can go to Walmart and get lamb anytime I want. Or beef, pork. Things that Solomon could never imagine we have access to at our fingertips. Immediately to gratify ourselves. Let me ask you again. Who's more at risk of being consumed with pleasure? Is it Solomon or is it the modern American church? I think the answer is obvious. I think it's obvious. The, the world we live in is driven by pleasure. We define morality and goodness by whether it's pleasing or not, whether it be good for us. Okay? This is how the world makes its decisions. This is how we are taught to frame everything that we do. Will it be good for me? Will it satisfy me? Will I get some good feeling out of it? And we're in great danger of, of not realizing that our lives are completely oriented around the pleasure of this world. See, these are the times that the Apostle Paul described to Timothy when he said, in those days, people would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the, the time that we're living in. That's the, the culture that we live in. That's the world that we're being tempted by day in and day out, that our children are being confronted with every day, wherever they go, wherever they look, okay? That's the world we live in. I think it's, it's obviously always being articulated in, in uh, all the public spheres, whether on television or in music or uh, in art, okay? That's always being articulated. You can think of some of the various ways this has been described in history. Many people remember Norman Rockefeller, who was asked uh, how much money is enough, and he would always, he's always quoted as saying, well, just a little bit more, right? That's the pursuit of pleasure. I have uh, one example I thought was helpful. It's a, a sports example. It caught my attention. Okay, Tom Brady, when he was 28 years old, was doing an interview on 60 Minutes. He had just won his third Super Bowl on top of the world, and he was asked this question. He, he was asked how satisfying it was to win his third Super Bowl. And this is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And there was this long pause, and the interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's, that is a clear articulation of the world that we live in, that is so hell-bent on the pursuit of pleasure, that doesn't yet realize that every time we get it, we need more of it. It's this empty, bottomless pit that will not satisfy us. And the question remains, what is there? One Puritan described it this way. I love this description. He said, the devil blows on the coals of passion and discontent. And then he warms himself by the fire. I think it's a a great description of the world that we live in. But the third question I want to ask maybe gets us to where we're going this morning, understanding this passage. What's the problem then? What's the problem with pleasure? And not only why does it leave us empty, but 
But what does it tell us then about our own hearts? Okay, let me tell you what the problem with pleasure is. It's very simple. I'll bring your try to draw your attention back to the first week we began this book. We talked about how God created the world and He made everything in it to move men and women to glorify Him and for the enjoyment of His people. That's the two reasons for creation, glory of God and for our enjoyment, okay? That's beautiful. And so God creates Adam and Eve, and He creates human beings with their senses, right? So the, the desire for the good things in this world through our senses is not a bad thing. Those two things are not bad things. God gave Adam and Eve sight and smell and taste and sound and touch, and He gave that to them for a very important reason, that through their senses, as they received input from the world around them, they would in turn glorify God. So it looks very simply like this. Pick a peach from a tree, take a bite, and say, wow, that peach is tasty. God must love us. See that connection? We hear the birds singing, and we say, wow, how beautiful are those birds singing. God must be creative. We look at the mountains and the splendor and beauty of them. We say, how majestic are those mountains. God must be powerful. You see that connection through the senses. We receive beauty and pleasure and all the good things of the world. And we, in turn, we glorify God and we enjoy them. And that's the way the creation was made. But if you remember two weeks ago, we said at the fall, the creation is broken. And God subjected the creation to futility to emptiness, to meaninglessness, okay? God did that so we wouldn't be ultimately satisfied with the world and we would in turn say, what gives here? There must be something more, just like Tom Brady did, okay? And the problem then in the world is that the creator has been disconnected from the creation and yet we still think we can find satisfaction in the creation. We're still pursuing those means even though the relationship has now been broken, all right? And we think they will ultimately get us where we are going. You see, the, the answer is not, are we indulging our pleasures or are we resisting our pleasures, right? To indulge yourself will be bad. Also, to resist all pleasure will be bad. God has made these things for our pleasure, for our good. It's not the answer at all. The, the answer is that we would find that satisfaction we seek in the Creator and not in the created. Okay, right? That's what Solomon is wrestling with this morning. That we would find our satisfaction ultimately in God who made these things, not in the things that He has made, okay? And when we find our satisfaction in Him, that we would glorify Him. You see, what we really want, what our souls crave, what our hearts long for can't ultimately be found in this world. That's the problem. So as I said before, pleasure becomes a bottomless pit, a pathway that has no end, a resource that the more we have of it, the more we want of it, an insatiable pursuit, a food that never fills, a drink that never satisfies. It's the exchange of the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal and created things. That's the way Paul described it in Romans chapter 1. It's empty. And so if we're to find meaning, purpose, and hope in life, we need to find satisfaction in the Creator and not in the created. Listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs describes this in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He said, a man who has learned the art of contentment 
is the most contented with any low condition that he has in the world. And yet, he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. Okay? The psalmist puts it like this. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Or seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And these things will be added unto you. Okay? The pursuit of satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. If we're not careful, it will be the constant pursuit of pleasure in this world. But our hearts need to be drawn to the Lord God by the work of the Spirit that we might find those things first in Him. And then by finding our satisfaction in Him, we may then find all the pleasures of this world to be right where they should be. To be good for us and enjoyable, but ultimately to point us to him. My encouragement for you this morning is very simple. This is something we need to be praying about, okay? We need to ask that the Lord God would remove the idols of our heart, which if, I think if we look deeply, we will find pleasure to be rooted deeply in there, that God would remove those things that he would make us not to be consumed with the things of this world, but to be consumed with him. And let me tell you something. We also absolutely need to be praying for the young people in our congregation, okay? For the children. If you believe this world is oriented to pleasure, just think about the world in 10 or 20 years. This is the direction it's going. What will our children face in the coming years? I don't know. And you might not even have children. That's okay, because you can pray for the kids of this congregation. They need your prayer. That in their hearts as they live in this world that is overseen by the prince of the power of the air, that as they live in that world that is tempting them to answer every question with, is it good for me? Does it feel good? Will it take away any displeasure? Suffering I might have. Okay? When they're being tempted by that, that the young people of our congregation would grow up saying, oh, how beautiful is the creation, and it moves me to worship the Lord God, to be consumed and enraptured and focused on and in love with only Him, who is the creator and not the created. Let me leave you with this. You might ask the question, how do I know if this is being worked out in my heart? How do I know that my life isn't built around pleasure, but it's actually built on the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me offer you a simple observation, okay? Take a look at your actions and your words. Take a look at your actions and your words, the, the things that you think and the things that you say. Are you so consumed with the things of this world that they entertain most of your thought, most of your conversation, and most of what you do, Okay? Are you so concerned with your station in life? Like, oh, I have these things and they don't. Look at me. Or they have those things and I don't. How pitiful. I wish I had those things, okay? Does jealousy consume you? Do you look at yourself and say, what a miserable state I'm in. How terrible are my conditions? I wish it was not like this. Is your conversation so consumed with pumping up the things of the world? And your thoughts with travel and vacation and with money and with career and with family and with you fill in the blank, all the things that we can be consumed with. Are you consumed with that? Or are you consumed with something else? You see, if this is being worked out in our hearts, people should look at us and they should say, I noticed something about you. Sounds like it's something you're really concerned with 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we'll have conversations about other things, but those things won't be primary. They won't be the things we're we're ultimately pumped about, that we're excited about, that consume our attention, that we speak about, that we love, that we nurture in our thoughts, that we wake up thinking about, that we go to sleep thinking about, okay? If this is being worked out in your heart, your attention is on the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, who has made these things for our pleasure. Let me leave you. This is articulated better than I could ever articulate it by Thomas Watson. He who loves God will endeavor to make him appear glorious in the eyes of others. Such as are in love will be commending and setting forth the amiableness of those persons whom they love. If we love God, we shall spread abroad his excellencies, that so we may raise his fame and his esteem and may induce others to fall in love with him also. Love cannot be silent. We shall be as so many trumpets sounding forth the freeness of God's grace and the transcendency of his love and the glory of his kingdom. You see, love is like a fire. Where it burns in our hearts, it will break forth at our lips. I think that's the best articulation I could give you. How you know this is being worked out in your hearts. So the prayer this morning is very simple. Would God work in us to deprive us of our idols, to direct our hearts to worship Him, that we would be consumed with Him, that we would glorify and honor Him, the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You. We thank You that You have loved us. We thank You that You have sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. We thank you, Lord God, that you have not left us to our own devices, but you have recognized, you have providentially planned for our fall into sin, the corruption of everything of this world, and our desperate need, and you have made a way. And so we ask you this morning as we continue our worship, that you would be glorified and honored through the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning, through the prayers of your people, through our meditations, and all that we do and say this morning. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.